Good morning once again, Dr. Olale Komuritala. Good morning, Mr. Obashola. Good to meet you. Oh, Professor Obashola, you know, I don't know. Oh, I'm, just, I'm just a young person trying to learn. Uh, we, we are, we are all learning. learning. Every day we learn new, new things. <laughs> Thank you very much for making time for this out of your busy schedule. Uh, like Jumaka said, would have been much honored having you physically at the presentation in uh, Obalele, but then we can always make up for that with this conversation. So I believe you have the knowledge and the idea of what the whole concept of Dunodura is all about. Well, well yeah. I read a few things about it. And okay. um, you know, from what Jumaka sent me, but and I think it's more of an interpretation of culture in an artistic, um, you know. But okay. I, I, I have an idea, and uh, you know, she actually made reference to one of my uh, um, write-ups. You know, she came across my publication online, and uh, she made reference to a particular sentence that uh, she got fascinated with, and which mm -hmm. she found to be in tandem with yeah. Uh, with what she is actually working on. And then exactly. she made me understand she would want to uh, have uh, a better conversation on that. So I, I want to believe I should be able to respond to some of your questions. Um, as much as possible, I would just allow you to flow. I would allow the freestyle, but then I would just have a direction to it. Though the, okay. the concept of um, do not do rise about um, nice markets in Yoruba spaces, actually, okay. starting with Obalin Day, that was where we had the performance with uh, Professor Jalili Atiko. So the idea is we're trying to see how some of these concepts in our tradition, how, what the connection, what, what is the connection we have with some of these concepts? For example, the night market itself, it's not just um, as a result of space. It is beyond space. There's a spiritual connection to what night market is all about. As a Yoruba person, I'm sure you understand better. So some of these things have been discussed. Then we had people talked about different knowledge they have um, about the concept of night market. Then we had um, people talked about the Obalende space itself, the, 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 the meaning of the space, then the interpretation of what the architectural okay. space looks like. So then when Jimoke said she, she, she got in touch with you about your write-up, then I, I believe that is now a book now. Yes, yes. So she said about um, a particular thing you, you, you talked about, then the question I want to ask you is just simple. Then we want you to just flow from there. That can you tell us more about how colonization deliberately impacted the African body? how colonization deliberately impacted the African body. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a very good question. Um, if you are talking about how colonization impacted on the African bodies, is to actually look at the perspective and probably to debunk the assertion that colonization, in the real sense of it, actually brought civilization in entirety. And if you connect that, because that has been the dominant belief, and that is why some of us that are scholars, we are saying that 
there is need for us to begin to decolonize knowledge. And to decolonize knowledge is to actually go back to our past, what had been in existence, what has been in existence in the past before we had colonization. So talking about colonialism, you see, the belief has always been that the Europeans actually brought civilization and that they created cities. But my argument, and we saw other scholars, of course, what are we talking settlements that could be likened to cities? Well, in the Western interpretation, they might not be qualified to be cities in terms of infrastructure, social and economic infrastructure. But there were towns in existence, you know, before we had contact with colonialism. So when colonialism came, when the Europeans came, if you talk of the case, Nigeria, for instance, when the British came, they met the African bodies and social formations. The bodies and social formations I'm talking about is the met in existence a well-structured social and political institutions. And what colonization only did was to shape, to introduce some certain things in order to shape these body formations to suit their own aspiration of colonialism. And don't forget colonialism itself was not without an element of capitalism. So in other words, these towns, there were towns and villages. African cities were not rural in the real sense of rurality, in the real sense of being villages, but there were towns, what you could call towns. Like I said at the beginning of the discussion, in the Western perspective, they might not be qualified to be called cities. And this partly explains the reason why. By the time the British came, they started by introducing ordinances that will facilitate the emergence of cities from the existing towns, meaning they only introduced measures to upgrade what they met on grant, and they did a kind of classification, a kind of classification in order to key to achieve their own aspirations. And if you ask me what were the aspirations of the British. The British, of course, they came, they were motivated to come for two, for, for two important reasons. Let me put it that way. One, don't forget that by the 19th century, especially after the Industrial Revolution thing, they had acquired so much money. They have made so much wealth that the Europeans felt that the only thing again for them that they needed was to move this world to other unknown areas. They are which were either to unknown to other places. And apart from that, there was this rivalry in Europe amongst the European nations, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, whatever, call it. And, they are, and what was fashionable for them at that period you know, there was what we call balance of power, which was threatened. So the only thing that was fashionable for them was to move out of, out of their geographical location, to look for large markets for their products. And 
most important, you know, to look for large market for their products, which they manufactured because Britain was not ready to buy from France. France was not ready to buy from Britain. Italy was not ready to buy from Germany. Uh, uh, by, the late, by the late 19th century, Belgium actually pioneered move to look for colonies in Africa. And so what motivated them was uh, uh, strategic. We, are, we had strategic reasons because some African countries also served as strategic routes for them to be able to move to, other, to their other imperial acquisitions. I give an example, for instance, uh, uh, for instance, there were strategic places in Africa. If you take the case of uh, um, the Suez Canal in Egypt, for instance, it was a strategic route for Britain to be able to reach the East, the Orient, where they had colonies. And so that in itself motivated them into taking over uh, Egypt. And so even Strait of Gibraltar in the North was very strategic for them too. And the same thing with Cape of Good Coast in South Africa, now that is one then you know the political reason is the aspect of you know trying to show off because at that period they seem to have acquired everything in terms of economic prosperity then there was this uh, balance of power threats in europe and then it became fashionable to show off to to show off colonies Acquiring colonies outside the European territories became fashionable. And so they moved out. Then they needed large markets for their products. They needed raw materials again for their growing industries in Europe. And so when they came, in the case of Nigeria, for instance, when the British came, they met on ground. People who lived, who had established, they had evolved on their own, their own political economic and social structures. And so in terms of the hardier culture, okay, in terms of these body formations that we are not talking about, the Europeans now decided to shape urbanizations, you know, through so many measures in order to suit their own aspirations. And so in that, you cannot remove uh, uh, the, the influence, imperial culture was introduced, you know, we are going to the cultural aspect because we are talking about social uh, uh, formations. Let me, let, me, let me quickly use a perspective. Part of the reason why they decided to classify cities, because what they met on ground were not entirely rural. No, they met towns. There were towns. You know, even Lagos was an island. There were towns, Iwo, or your, you know, from the empire, from the bigger empire, whatever, there were towns, but they might not qualify to be called cities. So now, now, in the case of Lagos, the British now decided to put in place social and economic infrastructure. So they started with transportation system, they started improving uh, water system, settlement pattern, and now the social uh, uh, bodies formation now will be better explained by using what Lewis Mumford claimed that city itself has always been a container and transmit, transmitter of culture. In the case of the city of Lagos, the European now introduced different measures and then they also introduced their own 
cultural way of life. That is one. Then apart from that, like I said, the settlement pattern they adopted, for instance, Lagos, they, they started by segregating. Lagos was segregated. For instance, in Lagos at that period, during the period of colonialism, there were different uh, uh, types of settlements. The Brazilian returnees, the Brazilian returnees were settled at Olowogo. The Europeans occupied area like Marina and other indigenous, they occupied what we can call the real Isaleko itself. And then the Europeans also expanded towards the east. They created Ikoyi and even Obalinde. You know, you have the story even in your, you have the summary of how Obalinde emerged. So in the course of doing this, in the course of doing this, the space began to act as a container and transmitter of culture. What do I mean by this? Yeah, it started to act as a, a container of culture because, for instance, there were those who worked with the Europeans and began to emulate their lifestyles, their mode of dressing, the kinds of food they were used to, they started copying it. And so uh, um, the culture of the people started changing from what it used to be. In fact, there was culture conflict because dilution in culture. In addition to that, don't forget that there were some educated elites too who had the opportunity of going overseas to study. They, some of them had studied overseas and they came back and they began to emulate the Europeans. That is in line with the liberated slaves, the returnees, those who had gone uh, uh, on slavery or whose whom forefathers had been on slavery, but they were set free. They were returned to Lagos. And so those ones too, they had already learned some uh, aspect of culture foreign to the culture of Lagos. So they started introducing their own lifestyle and culture. Now, having said that, one important aspect again, in which colonialism impacted on social formation is to also look at it from the perspective of city, because they created city. They created not in the case of Lagos, they created city. But if we talk about colonialism generally, they created cities. In fact, what a lot of people don't understand is that we cannot do without we, we cannot do away with our past. Because even the problem of ethnicity that we are talking about today, the Europeans made it, they created the problem through their classification. I give an example. They created the indigenous, non-indigenous dichotomy, the native, non-natives dichotomy. In fact, that partly explains the reason why, for instance, in the northern part of the country, then during colonialism, they created the Sabungari, Sabungari, non-immigrants. Okay. And of course, if you come to the case of and, and, and that they replicated in, in virtually everywhere. And that has become a culture, you know. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that before colonialism, the people of Nigeria, the various groups that were in existence, they had very good and cordial relationships. There was, they, they, they had been interacting, you know, exchanging goods, participating in long distance trade, 
There was mixture of culture and all of that, exchanging culture in the course of trading, long distance, short distance trade. So intergroup relations existed. A very good intergroup relations existed and even symbiotic relationship, okay? But then the Europeans came and this became distorted because they made the people to realize that there were some people to be known as immigrants, some people should be known as indigenous or natives. So in other words, they made uh, a more pronounced the realization of the differences in the different either to existing groups in Lagos and even in different parts of Nigeria. So if we are now talking about ethnicity today in the 21st century, it did not just start today, it could be traced back to the period of colonialism when the Europeans were around. And so in terms of culture, we can now look at it in this perspective that, okay, um, the city, what has been the role of the city that they created? Because if you go, if you go nitty gritty into the history of Lagos and even history of Nigeria, but it started in Lagos, they started with different ordinances. They started with the cantonment ordinance in 1903 or 1904. Then they introduced ordinances in 1926, city planning ordinances. But of course, they started, that was when they created the GRA, government reserve areas. People hear about GRAs today, they don't know what happened. How did we get to the establishment of GRAs? The GRAs was, uh, um, the GRAs came about through the uh, uh, cantonment ordinance, which initially was meant to cutter the troops the soldiers at that period to have a kind of reservation for them, a kind of reservation for them. And then it, later it, they upgraded it, they introduced some other ordinances. Then they also came up again to say, let us divide the cities into different classes, first class cities, second class cities, and all of that. And they did that in Nigeria. They created different cities. Now, having created the cities, Having introduced infrastructural, social, and economic infrastructure of development, for instance, in the case of Lagos, the city now began to act. The city began to act as a social body formation that has been shaped out. The city acted as servants. I want you to take note of the word servants, and the city also acts. The city also uh, sorry, acted or has been acting as promoter, yeah, promoter of new associations, new ideas, and new economic and social ethos. In other words, we can begin, you can look at the city that was created from two perspectives. The city as a solvent, what do I mean by this? The city as a solvent uh, is explainable by looking at the city that the Europeans created as a kind of uh, uh, um, formations, you know, uh, uh, it's a kind of social formations that has been weakening traditional social ties and loosening the traditional beliefs and values. Because the city that was created, um, the city that was created was multicultural in nature, there were immigrants from outside Lagos, for instance, from the interland of Nigeria, the people of Oyo, the people of Ekiti, 
people migrated in search of greener pasture in Lagos. Why? Because Lagos had been upgraded. For instance, look at when in the 1920s, when the look at when the McGregor Canal was constructed, the bridge was constructed, and you know, Lagos was linked with the mainland. And then electricity, they introduced electricity into Lagos, the transportation system was upgraded. And so people heard of the news and they began to move in from the interland, other parts of Nigeria, even other parts of southwestern Nigeria into Lagos. And so the culture, then that is one. Then even from the neighboring countries of Republic of Benin, what we refer to as Republic of Benin today, even from Ghana, they came in. That in itself is a Nigerians, they, are the South, they migrated to Lagos. And as a result of the train transport system, you know, train transportation, you know, by 1896 or thereabout, train was introduced from Lagos to Inguru, the Kano, uh, the uh, uh, Kano, Rano, uh, Kano, whatever line was introduced from Lagos then to Unguru in the northern part of Nigeria. And as a result of this train uh, uh, transportation, People moved in from the northern part of, uh, 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 from the northern protectorate or from the northern, yes, from the northern protectorate uh, uh, into the colony of Lagos at that period. But then that is not what makes Lagos to be special alone. Don't also forget that some slaves were liberated. So that's added to the composition. Then the European themselves, not only British, uh, uh, even non-European immigrants were around, the Lebanese, the Syrians, they all came to Lagos to trade. And now there was this dilution of culture. And so the city now served, the city of Lagos now served as a servant. It began to weaken the traditional social ties and also loosening the traditional beliefs and values. What do I mean? The traditional social ties of kinship ties and reciprocity began to give way to the uh, uh, um, to individualism, to individualism, you know, because there used to be, uh, uh, of course, we still have an element of kinship ties in extended family, even up to now. But you quite agree with me that that in itself has reduced considerably over time, especially in the post-independence period. So what I'm saying in essence is that it started during the colonial period people began to do away with what they used to know, the kind of lifestyle they were used to as a result of the uh, uh, dilution in cultures and influence of immigrants and strangers, call it Europeans, call it people from the neighboring African, West African countries, call it people from the interland and all of that. Then if you now say the city again as promoter, promoter in what sense? promoter of new associations, promoter of new ideas, and a new economic and social ethos. New economic and social ethos. Yes. You know, you cannot look at it and just conclude that, yes, the city as transmitter of culture or as solvent acted negatively. But of course, it also acted positively. So acted during the period as promoter of new associations as promoter of new ideas. There were definitely new ideas introduced by the Europeans that one could say that the ideas were beneficial even to the uh, 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 standard, of, to the benefit of the residents of Lagos. Then new economic and social ethos were also introduced. However, 
It is also important to know that even in the city of Lagos, the experience, the people, the residents experience so many things. Let me quickly give you a perspective. You know, like I said uh, at the beginning, I said colonialism uh, shape urbanization, okay? So cities will act instrumentally on African bodies and social formation, yes. And how did they achieve this, you know, through various policies, ordinances, they use ordinances a lot. Now, and the ordinances impacted greatly on social and economic activities. Let me give you an instance. I'll quickly give you an instance. There was a time the noise ordinance was introduced in Lagos, the noise ordinance. Then, you, you know, you, one may be wondering why the noise ordinance? The Lagosians were known for their culture of uh, convivality, celebration. They love celebrating. They love being, uh, they love play singing and all of that. And because the population of Lagos, like I said, Lagos during the colonial period, uh, Lagos had always been a Eldorado, but by the period of the colonialism, Lagos attracted more immigrants. You know, and Lagos then became a place that people felt they could seek greener pasture. You know, it's just like our people trying to travel to America now, Europe, and all of that. And so people came in from the interland. And this, there was this particular young man, Salami Jaguda. Salami Jaguda migrated from Ekiti, a part of Ekiti, and he was a drummer, you know, and then Tatena, he was a drummer. So he heard of Lagos, he migrated with a few of his boys, and they came to Lagos, beating drums, singing for people, collecting money. He was making livelihood, livelihood from singing and dancing. And the Lagosians, they loved it. So majority of his clients were the chiefs, the well-known, the big people in the society. And Salamis Jagura would sing, and himself and his team would make money and they were happy, not until the noise ordinance was introduced in 1903. And the noise ordinance banned all beating of drums in the afternoon, even beating of drums at night and all of that. And so for Salami Jaguda and few others, they were stripped off their means of daily livelihood. And so for somebody like that, who had no other means of making money, then, he was jobless, there was unemployment, he could not uh, uh, probably think of what next to do. And within think overnight, some of his boys started uh, uh, engaging in the act of pickpocketing. So, and then Salami too was enjoying the proceeds of their pickpocketing acts. And so before you knew it, uh, the whole of Lagos, they became alarmed. And wherever pickpocket, whatever happened, they say, ah, I want more salami new, I want more jaguda new, and all of that. Where I am going is that we didn't think of now, after a few a year or two or thereabout, salami jaguda name was synonymous with theft and pickpocketing. And you know that as Yoruba, what we grew up to know is that, you know, of course, they always say, Oleomo jaguda. So, what I'm trying to connect is that the Oliomo Jaguda that is now in the cosmological worldview of the Yorubas did not just emerge 
there was an event to it. And the historical perspective is what I am bringing now. You know, it's very common for people to say, ah, Oleomo Jaguda. And that, that salami Jaguda is of that, actual, uh, 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 that actually uh, led to himself and his boys to turn to pickpocketing and all of that. You see, if you take this example now, that is an aspect of how uh, uh, the how colonialism impacted also negatively, impacted negatively on, on the livelihood of some people in Lagos, you know, the noise ordinance. So then apart from that, like I mentioned today, we talk about, I, I'm also going to give you a very, a very another example that is even beyond Lagos, but that is very relevant. That is very relevant to what is happening now and which people don't actually understand. Today, we are talking about, you know, there has been mutual suspicion among all the groups. The Yorubas are suspecting the Igbos, the Igbos are suspecting the Aousas and all of that. And then we are shouting insecurity, banditry everywhere, Fulani men, where did they come from, and all of that. History is one thing we cannot afford to do without, because the, our past is in our present. People are talking about the Fulani men as if the Fulani men are just living in our midst now. No, the Fulani men had been with us for a very for a very long period for centuries and these there had been symbiotic relationship between the fulani etmen and other groups we are wherever they lived they established a kind of symbiotic relationship but then at what point do we begin to have problems with the fulanis and the fulani etmen look let me give you uh, a kind of historical perspective to it, which most Nigerians do not even know that it could be traced back to colonialism itself. It was Lord Lugard, it was Lord Lugard, okay? Lord Lugard, the man who amalgamated the Northern and Southern protectorates. You know, what has been the dominant discourse has always been that, oh, Lugard decided to amalgamate the Northern and Southern protectorates because of economic reasons that because Southern Protectorate was generating enough money into the coffers of the colonial authorities, unlike their Northern Protectorate counterparts, that you know that has been the dominant argument. Yes, that is on the surface. But beneath the surface, there were other reasons why Northern and Southern Protectorate were amalgamated. One of such reasons is what is giving us problem now. It was Lugard who encouraged the Fulanis, the Tuaregs, you know, there are different types of Fulanis, which people don't un actually understand. The Fulbe, the Fulani, the Tuaregs. The Tuaregs in the other Central Africa and whatever, uh, starting from Niger, Chad, and all of that, Lord Lugard encouraged over 2,000 Fulanis, I mean, Tuareg Fulani, as a result of dissertation. You know, the Northern Nigeria, most of these places, you call it desert area. And then as far back as that period, pre-1914, Lugard saw that the certification had impacted so much on the, this region that the population had been decimated. And he felt the area needed to be populated. 
the area needed to be populated so that the inhabitants of that region, because, you know, Lord Rugard seemed to have this flair for the Northern people, maybe because he felt the indirect rule system that he introduced was in, well, uh, worked well with them, and because he met on ground a kind of structure, institution, politically and socially, that was in tandem with his own aspiration. And that's also brings us to the issue of social formation again. Because what he met on ground in terms of social structure, in terms of political structure, and to some extent, economic structure in terms of you know, collecting the cattle tax and all of that, were in tandem with Lugard aspiration. So as a result of that, he, he, seemed, to, he seemed to have more flair for the, Northern, for the people of Northern Protectorate. And so he was ready to do anything to make sure that they were a force to be reckoned with in what would later become Nigeria. So he facilitated, he encouraged, you can imagine as far back as 1914, for somebody to encourage between 2,000 and 3,000 Tuaregs to come into Nigeria, okay? And you know, the Tuaregs to come into Nigeria, and his reason was that, that by the time they came in, they would solve the problem of population decline through what? Through procreation, that is one. And then, most importantly, I want you to take note of and um, lectured Niger, we had these Tuareg uh, uh, Fulani brands were encouraged to come into Nigeria. They were under France. And the main source of their economy was Katurieri. France was making money from these Tuaregs through Katurieri, through Katu taxes. And so Lugard was out to render impotence, to incapacitate the economy of France by reducing the population of this uh, 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 Niger Republic and Lake Chad. And so as a result of that, he felt if by encouraging, by throwing the border open for over 2,000, I mean, between 2,000 and 3,000 of them, to come into northern Nigeria, the population would have been decimated over the air. And then the cartoons, because they came in with their cartoons, with their out of cartoons, and so with their out of cartoons, so the cartoon would have reduced, and that in itself definitely would have reduced what France economically was getting from these colonies economic rivalry, political, you know, both political. Reasons, diplomatic reasons, economic reasons, and social reasons. If you take the population thing, you say social. Okay, social because he wanted to populate, he wanted to increase the population of northern Nigeria, which he felt had been decimated. Okay, uh -huh. then economic because, I mean, diplomatic because he wanted to incapacitate France economically. That's diplomatic. So now you can imagine. Over 2,000, they procreated, they increased their numbers, and that in itself caused dilution. Dilution, because the Tuareg Fulanese that came in, they were different from the Fulanese that were in existence in Nigeria before. The Fulanese that had established a kind of symbiotic relationship with their neighbors. I give you an example, for instance. You know, in the Benue area, in the Benue area, Governor Autumn 
I mean, Gabriel has been in the news for more than over a year now. The attack of the banditry, the attack of the Fulanis. Well, only God knows if really the Fulanis were, okay, are you getting the point? Were the people responsible? First, we have seen different videos. Fulanis have been arrested. Those who are not Fulanis were arrested. But where I am going is that in the case of Benway, it will amaze you to know that the Tifi, the dominant tribe in Benway, had established a long-term relationship with the Fulanis. Today in Nigeria, Benue is known to be one of the food baskets of the nation. In other words, you can say that they are predominantly farmers, predominantly farmers. So if you look into, into the, to their past activities, that is, look beyond now, you look back into the pre-colonial period. What happened between the Benue, uh, the, the, the Benue people, the farmers, let's take one of, let's take the dominant tribe now, one of the dominant tribes. That's, Tiffy, the thief. What happened between them and the Fulanese? For them, there was a symbiotic relationship. They saw the Fulanese as warriors. Why? They saw the Fulanese as protectors. Why? The Fulanese, then, as a result of the jihad of Uthmanan Fodu, of course, we know that Uthmanan Fodu budoed into a major part of the north. He was even on his way to the south. Western Nigeria before it was stopped at the Battle of Oshobo in 1840 or Now, for the Benue at that period, they saw in the Fulanese warriors and those who could protect them from external aggression. And so they gave them land. The Benues were farmers. During the farming season, during the farming season, the Benue people would use the Fulanese to protect them. Okay? To protect them while farming from external aggression. And after the harvest period, the Fulanese will bring their cattle to feed, okay? And the Benue people will also get from the uh, Fulani cattle dungs, which of course was natural manure. And so that was the kind of relationship, rub my back and rub your back. And they lived like that for centuries. So one is now surprised at the sudden change, the sudden change in their relationships. But like I said, don't forget, the, 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 the Fulani Tuaregs that were encouraged by Lord Lugard to come into Northern Nigeria, they came in and diluted the process. They intermarried with the existing Fulanis, then the whole thing began to change and even orientation began to change. They were more aggressive than the Gida Fulani that were in existence before. And you see, that is what most people don't actually understand, that even amongst the Fulani, you begin to have different classification, okay? And that is why we are saying that, you see, in Nigeria, it is difficult. We have to encourage the study of the past because our past is in the present. There is no way we can do away with our past. Understanding the past will enrich us to be able to understand our journey and then position ourselves without understanding the past properly. It becomes difficult to have good orientation. And then the structure that we are using now, we inherited from colonial authorities, from colonialism. And then in, even in terms of education, the kind of education we have is not rooted in indigenous knowledge, is more of Western and not rooted in indigenous knowledge. We don't, and that is why 
uh, 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 what I said, the city itself has always been a solvent, at the same time, a promoter, promoter of new ideas. We have embraced Western ideas to the detriment of our indigenous beliefs and values. So coming back to do not do that negotiation, the market and all of that, yes, the market, of course, is, uh, 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 we situate the market place to be uh, uh, a transmitter, a container. The market is likened to a container now, and that is a transmitter of culture. It is in the market that you see different groups of people carrying out their businesses with, without or with less sentiment of where anybody comes from. Whether Igbo, Aousa, you see, when we talk of all this ethnicity thing, when you get to the market, you see a different ball game. You see Yoruba buying happily from Aousa, buying from Igbo, buying from Kanui. We do, we transact, we do businesses and all of that. See, look at market itself. And market is also a transmitter of culture. It is in the market that you begin to learn new culture, you begin to learn new things, that you embrace new things. And even in the markets, the market space is a space for negotiation. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but my little explanation of that in tandem with your do not do that concept is that, you know, the body and the soul is just the way the soul and the body negotiate and all of that. So in the market square, the market is a promoter of ideas, a promoter of culture, a promoter of social and economic ethos. So I, I want to round off by saying that, yes, colonialism came not to, colonialism came to shape, to shape urbanization, you know, so that cities will act instrumentally on African bodies and social formation. The African bodies, those things, things had been in existence. So when colonialism came, colonialism only came to act on what, they, what it meant on ground in order to shape urbanization in tune with the aspirations of the colonizers. Thank you very much. Wow. Dr. Mkala, that was awesome. That was insightful, highly impactful. Thank you very much. That was deep. So many things to be, to be talked about, just that we have a very little time. But then, some of the things you mentioned, profound things you mentioned, actually, some of them, there are, there are things we have to note down for subsequent conversations. Okay. Because this, this is one of the things Jumoke is um, looking forward to is how we can regularly have conversations like these to to be able to to be able to shape a new perspective into what we have neglected in the past. But then quickly, I would want you to talk about this one thing I've jotted down during your conversation. I though you, you said some things actually that, that were like um response to what I've written down as a question, but then I would just appreciate if you can go. Yeah, that's what is breaking. Okay, can, is it better now? Sorry, I can't hear Are you. Can you hear me now? 
हेलो डॉक्टर मुकेला कैन यू हेयर मी मशाल्लाह आई कैन हेयर यू अह ओह कैन यू हेयर हिम फ्रॉम मिजो यस आई जस्ट आई कैन हेयर यू आई थिंक इट्स फ्रॉम मिजो ओके आई कैन हेयर यू नाउ डॉक्टर मुकेला कैन यू हेयर इज इट आई कैन हेयर यू नाउ आई कैन हेयर यू ऑल राइट ऑल राइट ऑल राइट डॉक्टर सो अम द क्वेश्चन इज how do we record i mean how do we decolonize the city and the body though you mentioned in your conversation that through understanding the past how can this be actualized considering what we have currently as as a nation considering what we have currently as as a people we have this um, mix of mix and acceptance of um, foreign different foreign cultures and beliefs that is kind of polluting our station one way or the other and this is the actualized this decolonization of the cities and the bodies through understanding the past how can it be actualized thank you very much it's uh, a very uh, uh let me say an aculian task yes it's an aculian task because um decolonizing knowledge is uh all encompassing and is very tasking You see the question you have asked is to is the thing because we have to we start from but then it's about uh, orientation is about education i think for me the first thing is to go back to the basics there has to be a uh, um a kind of a recomposition of the content of our curriculum you see that is one um first we need to we need to dissolve and recompose if i say dissolve and recompose what do i mean uh we need to begin to dissolve first by uh being sincere go back to what we have in our curriculum um do we encourage the teaching of indigenous knowledge do we encourage do we value our beliefs You know if you look at the society now look at the society as degenerated you know and we we can't seem to have uh enough of it the social media is there to pollute everywhere is difficult now parenting is even difficult much more difficult now unlike what obtained say in the last 10 years or thereabout because the younger ones are so much exposed to all the social media and they seem to know more than us even those of us that are parents now but then what i think we can do is uh not only for government but for all of us let me say that i appreciate the fact that uh, through art and whatever you are you are promoting culture and all of that we need to appreciate our culture okay and the only way we can achieve that is to go back to the basics in our curriculum okay there has to be a recomposition of the content of the curriculum so that what we teach to our children in schools will be a, a a departure of course we are still going to retain an element of western education we can't do without it is well rooted already but then there has to be a, a, an as there has to be aspects that will promote our culture that will promote our values that will promote our beliefs okay as a result of that the kind of personnel the kind of human beings that would turn out eventually 
will be those ones that will so much appreciate African culture. And then we start doing things in our own ways, apart from the Western. Then another, another aspect is that in our national life, in our national life, there is need for us to de-emphasize two things. In fact, federal character is not good for us because federal character is not good for us. It promotes ethnicity and differences. Then we also have to de-emphasize religiosity. You know, this is a Muslim, this one is a Christian, African traditional religion or whatever. Let it be personal, you know. We have to de-emphasize that in our spaces, in offices, in policy making, if you look at it today, what has been the problem of Nigeria has been that of ethnicity and religion. And that's exactly what the elites, at every given opportunity, they are always, they are always ready to plug into that, to further divide us as a people in order for them to achieve their personal uh, uh, aspirations, okay? So they always love to play the ethnic and religious card. So we have to go back to the basis. It will start from our the curriculum, what we teach to our children in schools. And they are asked to be uh, the National Orientation Agency. I don't know how active. Or maybe they are asked to be NGOs that will be at the front line of promoting African cultures. Things have degenerated, seriously degenerated, that we don't know what has befallen us in Africa and even in Nigeria. You know, we just look at all these social media and say, oh, it's the new thing, the technological innovation and all of that. But what do we do with it? What you see on social media these days, sad things, very unfortunate. It's not synonymous with our culture. I mean, I cannot begin to mention them. You and I know some of these things that are against our culture. So. Uh, we can achieve this through the overhauling of the education system. And of course, even when you look at it, all these things that we talk about, corruption or whatever, Yoruba culture, for instance, is very rich. Look at the problem that we have with young boys that are into cybercrime. They say Yahoo, Yahoo, Yahoo Plus or whatever now. People seem to have forgotten all these Yoruba aphorisms, different of them like that. Yoruba will say, you know, you have different things. Yoruba is Yoruba that will tell you that all of that. So where do we put all this? So, you know, it has to be achieved because the Oyibo themselves, when they started then, it was through education, through Western education, that the actual through Western education, they strip us of our ethos and cultures, which has, and, 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 and what they introduced, of course, over the years have impacted greatly on the way we do things. So it has to start through the recomposition of our education science so that we can then reorientate the coming generation. I must be sincere with you. The problem we have in Nigeria is problem of orientation. What kind of orientation do we have? Yes, you say the leader, the president, the box top on his table. Of course, what happened to the followers? The president himself cannot do it alone. That is why what happens to the local government chairman? What happens to the governors? 
What happened to the permanent secretaries in ministries of education? What happened to head of departments in various government perastatas? What happened in our universities? We have read so many stories. So you can see that for our generation, the only thing we can do is if we have, for instance, if the government can empower the National Orientation, National Orientation Agency more and reposition it to act, to do what is meant to do, okay? Bring into it cultural perspectives into the National Orientation Agenda, promote African culture, promote African ideals. There we go along with the anti-corruption thing, the anti-corruption campaign of government, go along with some other government, whatever. And then we begin to build institutions because we don't have institutions. It is because we don't have institutions, the judiciary has failed us because there will always be delay in the process of those who committed crime and whatever. Some will even go free. We don't have uh, uh, um, judicial institutions. We don't have financial institutions. Police institution is not there. It's because they are there, but, but they are not working the way they should be. And that is why we have all this pile up of problems. So we have to start the process of building institutions. America, Britain, France, all these countries, they are better than us because they have working institutions. And that is why they don't joke with their educational system because through education, you, you, you breed future generation. And that is, we are getting it wrong. Instead, our own educational system, because of greed, because of whatever, is getting more, uh, uh, how do I put it? Is getting more um, downgraded every day. Each day is getting more because of greed of the people that are in the hands of affairs. You know? So I, I don't know if I've answered your question. It's an Aculean task, but then we have to go back to the basis. The educational system has to be dissolved, recomposed. You know, I mean, in terms of the curriculum, there has to be a change in the content from the primary to the university level. Look at it now. Let me give you an instance, for instance, now. Presently, people will tell you that Nigerian graduates, the labor market now uh, uh, is not really meant for them because globally, what people are looking for in graduates is no longer about the certificate. You know, we are in the age of digital economy now, digital economy. And so if you are not, if you don't have digital knowledge, if you don't have all these Teams that employers globally are looking for. You are not there. So meaning your certificate is just uh, a kind of negotiating, do not do that now, it's coming into play, you know. It's a, it's a negotiating tool for you. Yeah, it's a negotiating tool that, are you trainable? Are you in tune with the 21st century skills? So if you don't have all these skills, yeah, the digital things are done electronically. So it's not enough for you to say, oh, I studied accountancy in the university. Do you have an idea of electronic accounting? Can you use all these Excel, Microsoft uh, accounting packages. If you're an engineer, can you use Dreamweaver? You know, can you use Dreamweaver? Are you into blockchain technology? If you are into distribution of so, so many things. I don't know if I have answered your question. Thank you very much, Mr. Vashela. Thank you very much. But before you go, doctor, um, what's your thought about archives? About archives, you know, as, um, as, as Yoruba people, we, we, we believe in special and um, embodied archives. Some of most, in fact, most of all of our all of our knowledge as Yoruba is passed through oral knowledge, majorly through oral, oral knowledge. So, what's your thought about archives, about special and about embodied archives? 
For example, market uh, can also be an, an archive. Yes, yes, market. Yes, well, um, your concept of archives here now, I think is a bit different from the archives I know. You know, of course, normal archives is a repository of knowledge. In most cases, you have documents, government documents, the classified and all of that. I work with archives a lot, but of course, we are bringing a new perspective that is, you know, uh, embodies archives. I mean, as you mentioned it. Yes, the market can be an archive. It depends on uh, uh, the going concern. You know, my idea of it is that if you are looking at it from documentation, other traditions, you know, through documentaries, you know, it depends on your concept or your going concern, the market can be embodied archives. Okay. And that will be true oral documentation of what goes on in the market. And I think you have just done something similar to that through your, uh, uh, the, what you did at Obalimbe night market the other time, you know. So the markets can definitely be a, a kind of embodied archives, but that will be true oral documentation. In history, we also have what we call oral documentation. What do we do? We interview the agents, those who have seen different things in life, you know, the elderly from their experience in terms of documentation. So if you are thinking of doing things like that with the markets, you can be moving from different markets. Look at, okay, that is night, uh, uh, this thing at the market. You experience a different thing with uh, Osho the market or any other market as well. So there can be documentation, electronic documentation of oral, uh, uh, oral, oral tradition. Let me call it that way, you know, knowledge that is transmitted orally. And then you can have it uh, documented electronically. So there can be, uh, the market can be an embodied social formation. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you very much, Prof. I, I, ju I just wanted to add something to that, you know, because, you know, us thinking about uh, spatial and embodied archive is also as a result of how, you know, Western knowledge system has been elevated compared to people as they'd like to classify it in the global south. You know, so you have people in the global south who, based on, you know, their systems of knowledge, uh, like indigenous knowledge systems, it's not admissible in the Western canon of history. So I'm thinking about it in the sense that why, I mean, now we're looking at uh, even the way that we look at archives in itself. You know, we look at archives in terms of the Western ways of uh, archiving knowledge, which is in terms of documentation. Ours is more about objects, you know, it's about orality, it's about objects, it's about, I mean, certain, I mean, we looked at what happened at the Valente market where we had certain objects and there was an understanding amongst everyone. When uh, Jalili Aksipu was performing and he had, you know, the Ajay uh, statue and all of that, it was an under, there was an understanding that it was, it was beautiful to see that people recognized it. They understood the significance of the object and they were transformed into another space. So for us, we're thinking about how to also, I think that what technology is doing for us right now is, is giving us the opportunity to right the wrongs of colonialism, to begin to investigate how we uh, forget and how we remember. Because at the end of it, the archiving is about remembering. But yeah. as a society, we need to come together and decide what we choose to remember and what we choose to forget. 
not based on what the West think we're supposed to remember or what we can, what we're supposed to forget. So I think that's what we need to take ownership of what we consider as our archives. So as Yoruba people, as Igbos, as Hausas, wherever you're from, uh, or even even I go around YouTube a lot. Um, just to actually even feel what people are thinking. And you find a lot of the music videos from the 80s. You know, I was listening to this woman, uh, Princess uh, Olajubu, I think she did this, uh, Echo Dara Kupo, Echo the Light. And you know, the thing is the video, somebody shared the video and the comments, you know, because it transported people back to their childhood. Exactly. People were talking about where they were when they listened to the song, what he meant to them, how it shaped their perception of education. That was just a song. So in, in, in itself, if we're going to archive that period, that song should be there. So again, we need to redefine for ourselves what archives are. And it should be, as you said, we should begin to, uh, we should begin to have a direct relationship with our environment uh, beyond you know, what the West think that we should focus on or not focus on. You know? So I think in a sense, that's one of the things that we're trying to do with this. And uh, Yes, I just wanted to add that, you know, to the conversation that, you know, what, what inspired the thinking about spatial and embodied archives, you know, and how we need to begin to think about what to remember and forget. Uh, I also, I mean, there was an experience also that I had in Rwanda. Uh, you know, they have this, um, uh, after the genocide, you know, they, they built uh, this uh, uh, genocide museum, you know, where, you yeah. know, they have, and it was, it's basically, it was, it was a very, it, for me, it was very significant because it was not a space of judgment. It was a space where they allowed both the perpetrators and the victims to have space to actually express why this happened. And I believe that that was a very interesting way to archive a genocide because it was not about right or wrong. Uh, and it was not about you know, saying you know, this, uh, it was just about events. And within the events, you had the victim and you had the perpetrator and there was the victim side of the story and there was perpetrator side of the story and all was admissible. Which I think is something we also have to think about when we're thinking about the Biafra war as well. You know, you have the no victor, no vanquish. How do we archive that? <laughs> you know, when we're thinking about it, you know, because that's at the end of it, that's what came out of it. No victor, no vanquish. So there was a Nigerian side of the story. There was a Biafran side of the story. How so can many we have sides this? of the story. So many sides of the story, you know, you had even the foreign, side of the story and all the many people yeah. that sort of perspective that also influenced it. So how do we, for me, I think one of the things we're also very keen about is how do we engage memory? I think at the end of the day, it's at the core of what we're doing. You know, how do we engage memory as a people? And, and you, one of the things that you also identified in your work is the idea that even space in itself affects people's relationship and memory and all of that. So how do we engage Decolonized memory is possibly, I think, my final question to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very nice one, Jumake. Uh, well, it's good. Um, how do we engage memory? You know, what you have just said is part of decolonizing knowledge, sincerely speaking. Yeah, you have just made me, uh, you have just given me a clear perspective of what your organization is out to do. And which, of course, I really appreciate is a very good effort. And it's about decolonizing knowledge. So, how do we engage our memory? Yes. Well, you have started it. Memory can be engaged through different means. 
those of us in industry, what we are doing is to bring into the fore what had happened in the past, you know, to be able to come out to say, this is the position. But then, like you said, how do we engage? Let me extend your question. How do we engage memory devoid of colonial knowledge, you know, as in decolonizing knowledge now? So, of course, we have to look out for those things, the, the neglected aspect of Nigerians, the areas that has been obscure, that the Europeans themselves deliberately silenced. These are the areas we need to begin to look out for. And then you can, you, uh, I mean, given your organization perspective, you know, I mean, your organization going concern, then you can work with experts in anthropology, experts in history to be able to identify, even in some instances, you work with linguists, you know, because if it comes to, I give an example now, let me give an example now, you know, uh, African territories, we experienced Atlantic slave trade for centuries. And then they just came, as a result of the industrial revolution thing, they just came up to say that the slave trade should be abolished. And people seem not to be looking at it from the perspective that, okay, you know, because they introduced laws, you know, to abolish slave trade and all of that. But the question is this, are we saying that there were no Africans that even fought slavery themselves? The Oyibos didn't give us that perspective. Read, so, read books from Lovejoy to Alagua from, to Inikori to Decotting or whatever, you hardly find things like that. But that is an aspect. That is not to say that we don't have anti-slavery activists. Instead, they labeled our forebears as people who participated and made so much money from, from slavery and did not even want slavery to end. Do you get it now? So that is why memory can be uh, uh, engaged you know, and um, memory can be, yeah, memory can be engaged through different platforms, through different means. It could be uh, through oral traditions, it could be through repository, I mean, by accessing archives and all of that, then it could be through interpretation of spaces and documenting events that are taking place and all of that. But what I would just say is that there is need really to uh, work as we have just uh, uh, probably uh, as you have read about my work, I decided to go for that to say, okay, let us engage this person in conversation. There is need for you to work with anthropologists, with uh, uh, historians, with maybe linguists, and um, to a certain extent, maybe sociologists and all of that, you know, to be able to identify some of these things that we seem to have lost. that we need to do before and memorize is identifying the obscure then you keep it in memory it depends you know you have just said it that the archives that we are familiar with just like me the archives that i'm familiar with is you know the western oriented archives thing you know way of documenting uh government papers what uh, transpired in the past except that in the Ibano school of history we are also into oral documentation which in a way is similar to what you are doing you know as an interviewing elderly ones to document their experiences and document to tap from their knowledge so that they don't go with this knowledge, you know, as has always been the case. So we are into that now, oral documentation. But then in your own case, knowledge, of course, 
can be engaged through what you are doing, okay? But then you need to work with experts to be able to identify the obscure, what has been doing, I mean, something, a departure from the dominant discourse, what the Western world did not give to us, but that's a beneficiary to our existence.